Eye on Arabia, reporting, analysis, and the occasional surprise from author and Middle East specialist Joseph Browdy. Today we'll hear from the former Minister of Water and the Environment in Yemen about the country's looming water crisis and learn about a new book on how Egyptian media have been faring since that country's revolution. Perhaps the most dire water crisis in the Arab world today is in the Republic of Yemen, home to 24 million people and a robust al-Qaeda presence. America Abroad's Joseph Browdy spoke with Yemen's leading experts on the water crisis there about how to keep water problems from worsening into political ones. Yemen, one of the poorest countries in the Arab world, long fraught by civil war and jihadist groups, is rapidly approaching a water emergency. The World Health Organization defines extreme water poverty as a supply below a thousand cubic meters per capita. And in Yemen, I think, I think it's around 120 cubic meters per year. And this is going down, diminishing, because of population growth. That's Mohammed Lutf al-Aryani, Yemen's former minister of water and the environment. Our sources in Yemen said that Skype has been blocked due to the difficult security situation in the country. This left only the option of a phone interview, so we've done our best to clarify the speaker's words. And this is actually around 10% of the world's average, less than 8% of what's the requirements for food and drinking in terms of how much a person needs water for producing food, domestic uses. The country's weak central government, often classified as a failing state, has been hard-pressed to manage the crisis. So around the capital Sana'a, where groundwater is all but depleted, farmers have been digging their own wells to suck out the little that remains. It isn't enough. Sana'a is about 3,300 meters above sea level, with a population of more than 2.5 million. Bringing water from the coastal areas, it's very expensive. Pumping water 3,300 meters up a mountain is a luxury the country can't afford much longer. In the long run, the only answer is to relocate the capital and most of its 2.5 million people. This will be the inevitable solution. Because with the population growth in urban areas, not just Sana'a, but also other major urban centers in the highlands, there's no way we can provide enough water for drinking. The distribution will have to be by encouraging and providing incentives for the population to go down to the coastal areas and to start a serious plan for desalination development. The government is the main driver of the economy, and it would not be possible to move population in the urban areas without moving government institutions down there. It would have to be, of course, a gradual process. It cannot be a one-shot kind of thing like some other countries. You'd have to move step by step, even some of the industries, the government ministries, it's not an easy decision, I realize that, but that's why I say it would have to be gradual. I think maybe over a 10-year period, we can do it. Yemen's neighbors include some countries torn by war, like Somalia, but also others flush with cash, like Saudi Arabia. We have more than a million refugees. We have more than a million refugees from Somalia and the Horn of Africa, from as far as Chad and Ethiopia who come to Yemen if they cannot get through to other neighboring countries. They end up staying here, and they add to our water problem. Of course, droughts in these countries and wars, they increase the kinds of refugees. On the other hand, we are neighbors to some of the richest countries in the Arab world and in the world. 
and are very advanced in desalination. They have reliable desalination as their source of water supply. They have to make an effort because it's an expensive option, but the wealth of these countries can make them able to pay for that cost. On the backdrop of a post-Arab Spring political transition in Yemen and a costly war against al-Qaeda, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states fear that Yemen's water crisis could be the straw that broke the camel's back, causing a massive wave of refugees into their countries. And so for them and for so many countries in the world which depend on Gulf oil, funding a Yemeni water rescue has become a strategic necessity. For America Abroad, I'm Joseph Browdy. A new book out by Naomi Sucker, Transformations in Egyptian Journalism, should be required reading for Americans and others who want to access Egyptian society through the media. Bilingual Sucker, a media policy professor at the University of Westminster and director of its Camry Arab Media Center, draws on new research and decades' experience tracking Arabic media trends to offer a readout on how Egyptian journalists and their employers have been struggling and coping yet also innovating since the 2011 revolution. Some people who specialize in American public diplomacy and strategic communications believe that part of America's strategy in Egypt should involve supporting indigenous media that share American values. Sucker's book provides guidance on whom to engage and what types of support they need most. Independently-minded journalists and bloggers achieved notoriety in Egypt as early as 2005, Sucker writes, in the wake of Egypt's rigged parliamentary elections. With the onset of revolution six years later, these voices tried to take advantage of the collapse of dictatorship to launch no-holds-barred media ventures, largely online, some of which relied on citizen journalists to provide reporting and footage which no state media venture would print or air. British-Egyptian actor Khalid Abdullah told Sakhar that Egypt's was the first revolution in world history to be filmed by its people rather than by a news organization. Meanwhile, state-controlled media briefly fostered the delusion that no revolution was taking place. A scandal on par with the notorious state media claim back in 1967 that Egypt was winning the Six-Day War against Israel. New media upstarts, many of whom had been experimenting with web TV and other internet-based ventures, faced a backlash after Mubarak's fall, despite widespread enthusiasm for their work. Egypt's Supreme Council of the Armed Forces moved to block all criticism of the military establishment and so fears that local media were in cahoots with foreign elements. Among the international NGOs memorably shut down and raided by the army in February 2011 was the Washington-based International Center for Journalists, which had been providing training and capacity building to local media under the leadership of a veteran Egyptian reporter. The army move was of a piece with Mubarak-era clampdowns, which had also been sold to the public as a response to foreign conspiracies. But Sakhar documents the extent to which Egyptian journalists, as well as their audiences, see through these bogus claims today. They appreciate American and other outside sources of support for local media and want more of it. Egyptian media interviewed by Sakhar tend to disdain short-term training sessions offered by some international NGOs and prefer other forms of support. 
such as pressure on the Egyptian government to liberalize media laws, and financial and strategic investment in nascent media companies to enable the possibility of eventual self-sustainability. But what sort of media ventures should Americans engage as partners? The book counsels avoidance of shrill point-counterpoint talk show programming, which furthers political polarization without expanding the amount of verified information citizens need to make sound choices, in Sucker's words. The book also advocates for Egyptian investigative reporting that shames government and the private sector into mending their corrupt ways. But missing from Suckler's assessment, perhaps, is recognition of the importance of positive coverage of those Egyptians who deserve it, like leaders of civil society and activists for social and political reform. In environments where government is weak, opaque, or lacks a separation of powers, it does not follow that the exposure of wrongdoing through investigative reporting will usually lead to its redress. In my view, under such circumstances, reportage on corrupt practices by itself can sometimes have negative consequences. It may reinforce the public sense of powerlessness and defeatism, which in turn further enables corrupt forces to behave with impunity. Investigative journalism should be supplemented by coverage of present-day heroes of Egyptian society, and there are many who can provide hope and inspire others to follow in their footsteps. Developed democracies in the United States and Europe host numerous NGOs that can admirably train Egyptian journalists in investigative reporting, but tend to offer little support for other forms of journalism beyond the traditional watchdog role. On the whole, Sucker's sleek volume, Transformations in Egyptian Journalism, presents shrewd analysis as well as capsule profiles of dozens of Egyptian writers, broadcasters, and entrepreneurs who are barely known in the United States, but really ought to be, because they're well worth engaging. You've been listening to Eye on Arabia. If you'd like to learn more or get in touch, follow me on Twitter at J-O-S-E-P-H-B-R-A-U-D-E or browse www.josephbrowdy.com. On my homepage, you'll also find a link to my weekly podcast in Arabic, Risalat New York, as well as links to books, articles, and upcoming events. (music) 